Progress. Evening, everybody. Good to see you. Good to be back with everybody. So a few preliminary words before we get to our subject. <clears throat> First of all, uh, thank you, Chris. I'm not sure if Chris is here, but thank you, Chris, for uh, taking care of the seminar this last month. And uh, I heard that everybody had a pretty good time studying the Wheel of Life, which is one of the best ways to uh, contemplate the foundational, some of the most basic and foundational uh, teachings of Buddhism. So that was a great idea she had. And then uh, she ended uh, last week, I, I heard, uh, with many of you in person there at the church, listening to three really terrific uh, Waysiki Mind Talks by Liz, Audrey, and Shufi. And I was sorry I couldn't be there. I was down at Kanando uh, in Mountain View that day with the Sangha down there, so I couldn't, I couldn't attend. But I was able to listen to the talks, and they were, they were great. Liz, uh, Audrey, and Shufi were all, each one in a very different way, really eloquent, as I'm sure you also noticed and were able to share uh, some pretty profound and poignant teachings uh, that came from their hearts and from their lives. Uh, so I was really, really moved by it and uh, it made me think that, you know, we all look around the world and we see um, normal, ordinary people, but there is no normal. And there is no ordinary. Every life, when you look into it, is passionate and remarkable. And somehow the three of them managed to express that in a short amount of time, the passionate and remarkable quality of their lives. And so I felt really happy hearing those talks that we have people like that in our Sangha. And I was also grateful to Chris for, for thinking of doing this and for inviting these three particular people. Uh, as you probably know, uh, uh, part of what I was doing for a lot of the month was uh, some Shiho ceremonies, Dharma transmission ceremonies at our house. And so I want to congratulate uh, Flo Rubli from uh, our Mountain Rain Sangha in Vancouver, British Columbia, uh, and Ruth Ozeki, who I see on screen number one right here. Hi, Ruth. Uh, she is now uh, living in Eastern Standard Time, or Eastern Daylight Time at the moment in New York, and hanging out some with the group there. And our own Natalie Davidson, who I think is also here. Hi, Natalie. She also uh, received the ceremony. Now I have to explain this uh, very briefly as best as I can in a, in a few minutes. Shiho ceremonies, Dharma transmission ceremonies, are supposed to be uh, secret 
and private. They're not public celebrations. They're supposed to be done in seclusion. Uh, and, and what they mean is that the person is fully ordained as a Zen Buddhist priest. It's a very complicated procedure with lots of little parts to it. And it actually takes eight full days to complete. And you have to work hard at it, you know, the whole time. I mean, you, you know, not night and day, you go to sleep at night, but you wake up early in the morning and that's what you do all day long for eight days in a row. And the ceremonies are always done all together as a group, although there's different little ceremonies. But if you look at the structure of them, you could divide them into two parts. The first part uh, is face-to-face -face transmission, in which disciple and teacher acknowledge together at the deepest possible level their mutual identity and recognition. So that comes at the beginning, and then after that comes the really complicated parts of the ceremony, which empower and obligate the disciple to be a Zen elder. In other words, to be able to ordain students and carry the Dharma forward to another generation. And so in the case of Flo and Ruth, all of this was done and they received, among other things, the brown ocases that they had sewn in one of the ceremonies. And in the case of Natalie, we only did the first part of the ceremony, the personal Dharma transmission ceremony. And so that means that Natalie has come to the final and complete stage of her being a priest, which is a deep turning of the heart, and also a brand new beginning. You feel like you're starting over again after these ceremonies. But she did not receive, and she does not need, the ecclesiastical empowerments to perform ordination ceremonies and pass on the Dharma and all of this other stuff. So I hope that when we meet together next in person uh, on the 29th of November, I'm hoping that Natalie will be able to come and we can have a cake and a cup of tea and celebrate Natalie. So I wanted to congratulate everybody and explain all that since that's what I've been doing while, while uh, Chris has been here with you. So now we finally get to uh, our topic for tonight, uh, Vasubandhu's Three Natures. Uh, now, um, this is the third time in not that many years, I didn't look this up, but I think uh, within a short number of years, six, eight years, this is the third time that we will have studied Yogacara thought which is also called, uh, sometimes called Vijnapti Matrata thought, meaning appearance only, or Vijnanavada, mind only. This is the third time we will take up these teachings. The, the first time we did it by spending quite a while uh, reading Thich Nhat Hanh's book, which used to be called uh, Transformation at the Base, when we read it, it was called that, but it's been repackaged and republished uh, under the title Understanding Our Mind. So many of Thich Nhat Hanh's books are like that. They, he's like a whole book industry in himself. You know, they keep uh, coming out with books from his talks posthumously and repackaging books that he's written before. Uh, 
anyway, that was that was a great study. I I thought I really enjoyed that. It, it, he it, this was something that was only Thich Nhat Hanh could do. He wrote his own uh, Yogacara text, his own verse text, fifty verses, in imitation of Vasubandhu, who wrote verse, you know, poetry texts of Yogacara. And then Thich Nhat Hanh, uh, writes an auto-commentary to his own 50 verses. And that's what we studied. And it was really good to study that because uh, before that, over the years, uh, there have been translations of other Vasubandhu texts, but I always found them way too hard to understand and get much out of. So it was great to have this uh, pretty accessible text by Thich Nhat Hanh, which was totally true to the Yogacara teachings, but you could understand it. And then, a few years after that, <clears throat> Ben Connolly did what I thought was impossible, but he did it wonderfully. He translated another Vasubandhu text called 30 Verses, and he wrote a lucid and understandable commentary, and that book was called Vasu, Inside Vasubandhu's Yogacara, A Practitioner's Guide, and we also studied that one closely for our seminar. So when Ben recently came out with another Vasubandhu translation, this one called Vasubandhu's Three Natures, A Practitioner's Guide for Liberation, I thought this would be an opportune moment to go back to the topic of Yogacara. So this is Ben's book, published by Wisdom. So we'll use this for our seminar. And also we will use... Um, and really good online translation, which is easy to find by J. Garfield. G-A-R-F-I-E-L-D, J. Garfield. I think we have a link to this translation uh, on the webpage. And J. is a tremendous scholar, a Buddhist scholar, and also an expert on Western philosophy. He's a friend of Ruth's from Smith College, where Ruth used to teach, and I really enjoyed meeting him when I, when I was there a few years ago. And his translation and commentary are, are really good and provide dimensions that uh, Benz doesn't because uh, Jay is a philosopher, not a necessarily a practitioner, and, and Ben is, is really speaking to Soto Zen students. Jay is more speaking to philosophers and Buddhist specialists, but uh, his translation is really good too. So we're going to spend uh, three months on this study. Uh, the, all of this month, December and January. Uh, but that's only going to amount to ten meetings because uh, it's holiday time. We'll take weeks off. You know, we'll take the Wednesday before Thanksgiving off as we usually do and some weeks for Christmas and so on. So we'll have ten meetings. And there are 38 verses in this text. And in Ben's book, there's a chapter, a short chapter for each verse, so that means we'll roughly cover more or less four chapters of Ben's book every week. So that's, that's what, we, what the plan is, and I, I, it'll, be, it'll be good to see how this works, whether we can stand ten weeks on abstruse Buddhist philosophy. But like I say, Ben, ben really makes it... Uh, very relevant to our practice and hopefully in our discussions we'll also um, 
bring it home to our actual practice. But before I go into the first verses of the text, I want to just say that uh, there's a lot of different philosophical Buddhist teachings behind Zen. Zen. Zen dialogues include lots of different kinds of Buddhist teaching. So, um, in the beginning of what we have come to call Zen, uh, in, in China, Bodhidharma emphasized a, a, an early version of mind-only teachings as found in the Lankavatara Sutra. And we have studied the Lankavatara Sutra. And, and it kind of makes sense because, you know, when you are introducing a practice that emphasizes deep investigation of meditation for the purpose not just of calming down but of revolutionizing and liberating the mind and transforming the life, it kind of makes sense that you would be emphasizing a text, a text that involves analysis of mind and emphasizes the absolute importance of mind. And that was the kind of practice Bodhidharma was sharing when he came to China. And it was a practice that uh, at first seemed pretty esoteric and countercultural to the Chinese, as you can tell from the stories about Bodhidharma. You know, he did not have a lot of students. He was a, he was lived a life of seclusion. When he when he went to visit the emperor, the emperor you know had no idea what he was talking about. So that's Bodhidharma, who was an early proponent of mind-only teachings. And so at the very beginning, Zen was all about mind-only school. Later on, six generations later, or I guess five generations later, uh, the sixth ancestor, Huinang, whose sutra we also studied, shifted the emphasis to the emptiness teachings. And in his case, the Diamond Sutra was important, and we also studied the Diamond Sutra. The most typical of the Emptiness Sutras is the Heart Sutra, a one-page sort of summary of them all. And as we know, the Heart Sutra is the sort of ultimate Zen text we chant it every day. And these teachings don't necessarily emphasize mind per se. They emphasize the fact that there is nothing substantial or independently real anywhere to be found. That the whole world we live in and take for granted as such is not the way it looks to us. Emptiness also means, because the reason why form is emptiness and emptiness is form, is that Everything depends on everything else. Nothing exists independently on its own, on its own, which for Indian thought was the definition of real existence. It was an independently existing entity, but there are no independently existing entities. The emptiness teaching says everything is interdependent 
And that means that we're suffering because we're holding on to things that we think of as being independent things, and they're not. They're, they're, they're nothing that we're holding on to. And so we're suffering to holding on to something that doesn't really exist in the way that we expect it to exist. And as one, as you know, you know, um, having an expectation that is not fulfilled is a very painful thing, and that's the story of our lives according to emptiness teachings. Then there's another kind of teaching that is important in Zen, which is Huayan thought, and, and that's a kind of school of Chinese thought, Buddhist thought, that comes from the Avatamsaka Sutra. And it is, it is also equally with these other two I've mentioned, a key teaching for Zen. And in a word, the burden of the Avatamsaka teachings, the Huayan teachings, is that all things interpenetrate. It's a very like cosmic, uh, almost like quantum physics-like teaching. Space and time are not as they, ap they appear to be linear and extensive. In fact, everything is complete in itself, includes everything else, and every moment of time is complete and includes all moment of time, all moments of time. And this probably f sounds very familiar to us because. This is the basis of Dogen's teaching on time and the basis of his idea, which is so central to our practice, right? His idea that practice is to literally and actually participate in the awakening of the Buddha. The awakening of the Buddha is not something that happened long ago in a linear historical moment. It happens every time you do zazen. That's what Dogen says, and that comes from the Huayan teachings. One last important teaching that there would, Zen wouldn't be Zen without it is the Tathagata the, the Garba teachings, which uh, emphasize that all beings are, by their nature are already Buddhas. So awakening is not a matter of acquiring some insight or knowledge or skill. It's a matter of letting yourself open to who you always have been, but have not really had the permission or the courage or the chance to ever see before. So all the stories of the old Zen masters with their uh, sometimes clarity, sometimes strangeness, refer to one or more of these teachings. Sometimes directly, sometimes, you know, there's a Zen koan that quotes one of these sutras, but sometimes uh, indirectly. But, there's all, but they're always there. All these teachings are always there. So now, so that's a little bit where uh, Vasubandhu's uh, mind-only teaching fits in with Zen. So Vasubandhu is the 21st Zen ancestor. If, you know, Zen lineage is said to go back to the Buddha. There are 92 generations of Zen ancestors. It's an amazing thing to me. There's only 92 generations from Buddha to the present. It's probably not exactly true, but that's the conception. 92 generations from Buddha to the present, and Vasubandhu is the 21st generation. So Vasubandhu is actually in our 
direct lineage. And he lived in the 4th and 5th uh, centuries and is one of the great Buddhist thinkers of all time and is said to have been the founder with his half-brother Asanga of mind-only, appearance-only teaching of Mahayana Buddhism. Um, there were sutras existing bef before uh, uh, Vasubandhu, but Vasubandhu and Asanga did writing that made clear what these teachings were about. Before he, he was writing about uh, Yogacara thought, he was already like the great expert on pre-Mahayana Buddhist realistic psychology, which we call Abhidharma. There's a famous treatise that he wrote, which uh, was one of my, I have that, I have several uh, books that are multiple volume religious tomes, you know, and I'm, I, I, not that I read them exactly all, but uh, I'm like very happy that I have these. And one of them is the Abhidharma Kosha Bhasha, which is Vasubandhu's four fat volume treatise, which is the standard text even today of early Buddhist and Abhidharma thought. If you want to know the details of what Indian Buddhist thought, and Indian Buddhist thought is pretty sophisticated and complex, but if you want to know anything about it, that's where you go. You look it up in the index of the Abhidharma Kosha Bhasha and you read about it there, uh, including what different people said and the different debates and who was right and who was wrong. You consult that text. So Vasubandhu is quite extraordinary because he was the great master of two totally different uh, schools of Buddhism with totally different uh, ways of thinking. And if you're interested in Vasubandhu, the uh, Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy tells you a lot of stuff about Vasubandhu, including like summaries and arguments and, and you know details about all of his books. So he wrote three short classic texts on Yogacara thought. One is the one that Ben translated, uh, the 30 verses. He also wrote a text called the 20 verses, and he wrote this one that we're going to read this time, the three natures. And they are all uh, in this tradition of very short, elegant, rhymed Sanskrit verses, which I think were always intended to be almost like lecture notes. In other words, nobody was really expected to be able to understand the full implications of the teaching from reading these verses. But the verses sort of in shorthand form included the pith of what needed to be explained uh, afterward. And so uh, the 20 verses and the 30 verses include, just like the Abhidharma Kosha is in verse, but it includes a vast auto-commentary by Vasubandhu, so do the 20 verses and the 30 verses. They include auto-commentaries by Vasubandhu, and they've been studied a lot, but for some reason the three natures text does not have an auto-commentary by Vasubandhu, and that's why um, it has not been studied as much, even though it's very important and often referred to. A lot of these teachings, you know, are 
mostly studied in detail and preserved in Tibetan. The Tibetan Buddhists, you know, have a really thoroughgoing scholastic tradition of studying all this stuff. And just as a little aside here, I guess you all realize that um, there's a distinction between, uh, on the one hand, sutras, which are in the form of, uh, you know, adventures and words of, of Buddha, various Buddhas and their disciples, and sutras are um, expansive, Mahayana sutras anyway, are expansive, imaginative, dramatic religious texts, but treatises like the three natures are philosophical expositions, organized philosophical expositions of sutra teachings. And treatises are written by, you know, named Buddhist pundits like Vasubandhu. Sutras are not written by an author, you know, they're understood to be the direct words of the Buddha. So that's the big difference between sutras and treatises, but they support one another. And important teachings like Yogacara are important because there have been important treatises exp with expositions of them. So the emptiness teachings are important because Nagarjuna wrote similarly important treatises on the emptiness teachings, which we've studied too in the past. We've studied a lot of stuff in the last 30 years. I guess you would, right? If you just kept going for 30 years, you'd just study a lot of stuff. Again, sometimes, many times, over again. So anyway, yes, we've studied Nagarjuna's famous treatises. So there are lots of sutras that have Yogacara elements in them besides the Lankavatara Sutra. But uh, in his uh, Yogacara treatises, Vasubandhu doesn't really refer to the sutras per se. He's really, he's explaining reality sort of based on the teachings of these sutras. So, of course, you know, uh, uh, the Western world has this idea, philosophy and treatises just like the Buddhist world does uh, from the Greeks, right? And, and the, and the pre-Socratic Greeks, there have been a long impressive history of Western philosophy and the, and the goal of Western philosophy, uh, although some have uh, argued against this uh, in the beginning, but in general, the goal of Western philosophy is to discover what's true. Let's find out the nature of reality. Let's philosophize and discover, you know, what is true. And modern science is sort of an outgrowth of that, and it introduces the empirical method, and it applies the goal of finding out what's true, what's real, specifically to the material world. But in Buddhist thought, that was never the goal. Buddhists never had the goal of discovering the truth or telling you the truth about reality. Sometimes when you read these treatises, you can lose sight of that because it sounds like they're telling you what's true and what's real. But that was never the goal. Early on uh, in the Pali Canon, you read about the Buddha refusing to answer certain questions. And it seems as if the Buddha thought that it was not really possible 
to find out exactly what was true. Mainly because as long as we were trying to discover the truth, the human mind would always be a filter for whatever it was we were discovering. So the human mind would always conditioned, condition whatever we saw so that we, we would never be able to see the truth. We would only be able to see what we saw. We wouldn't be able to see beyond it. So there couldn't be any objectivity from the Buddhist point of view because we could never get ourselves outside of the picture to look at it. We would always be inside the picture. So you could never subject, for, for, for the Buddha, you could never s separate subjectivity and objectivity. They were, they were always wrapped up together. And, and as far as I understand, which is a, less than a drop, I think quantum physics seems to also have some idea like that, that somehow the observer changes the reality being observed. That's kind of what the Buddha thought. So the purpose of the Buddha's teaching was not to tell you what was the truth. The purpose of the Buddha's teaching was to liberate you from your human suffering. So all Buddhist treatises are not telling you what's true. They're telling you a truth that is true enough to liberate you. Sometimes they say that Buddhism has no metaphysics or ontology, only a phenomenology, a practical, experience-based way of thinking that will transform our human life. And, and I'm always impressed with how radical um, Buddhism is. It is really saying that the whole world needs to be turned upside down for us to be liberated. It's not a small undertaking. So that now we're at the mind-only teachings. And the essential idea of these teachings is that what exists in the human world, which is the only world we could live in, what exists is what our mind can experience or think or sense in some way. That there is no existence for us outside the existence conditioned by the mind. That's fundamentally what exists, is the mind and what the mind produces. And classically, that, that's idealism. And there's also idealist thought in Western philosophy. Kant was an early idealist. He said that we don't see the world as it is. There are categories in our mind that cause us to see things the way we see them. And there's a whole bunch of important German idealist, idealist philosophers. There was also the famous Bishop Berkeley in England, who was a, an idealist, who said, you know, the world only exists in the mind. There is no outside world. That's radical Western idealism, but Buddhist idealism is not exactly like that. Buddhist idealism isn't really saying that. It's not saying that nothing exists outside the mind. It's saying only 
that the world we know, we, the world we know, the only world we know, including, you know, the galaxies and anything we can imagine, anything that our instruments could measure, anything we know, anything we experience, we know and experience only because of our mind. The world is the world of our mind. And since that world is the world that causes us to suffer, the way to end our suffering is to clarify and transform the way we situate ourselves within our mind, to transform our understanding of our minds. And that's what Bodhidharma was trying to do when he faced the wall for nine years. And that's what we're trying to do when we sit in Zazen. Transform the mind is to transform reality, is to transform, therefore, our human experience. So here are the opening verses in Ben's translation. Ben and uh, I forget the name of the other guy who translated with him. Weijen Teng. Weijen Teng. Because Ben, I'm sure, doesn't read uh, Sanskrit. They translated from the Sanskrit. Um, so here are the verses. I'll read them slowly. The imaginary, dependent, and complete realized natures. Those are the three natures. The imaginary is the first, the dependent is the second, and the complete realized nature is the third. The wise say these three are what is known as profound. Meaning, to really understand reality is to understand that reality always has these three natures, the imaginary, the dependent, and the complete realized natures. Now he explains what, what they are. What appears is the dependent. How it appears is the imaginary. Since it is dependent on conditions and it exists as mere imagination. The constant, and this is the next verse, the constant absence of how it appears in what appears is known as the complete realized nature since it is never otherwise. Fourth verse, what appears there? Unreal imagination. How does it appear? As a duality. What is its non-existence? The essential non-duality. Well, this requires a little bit of explanation, right? And it's meant to. You know, no, nobody could read that and say, oh yeah, right. So, in order to understand it, you, you, you read the commentaries that Vasubandhu, starting with Vasubandhu's own commentary and then a million others. And in our case, we're reading Ben's commentary and um, Jay's commentary. 
So let's go back and try to uh, see what we can get out of these four verses. So the first verse, as I said, gives you names, three names for the three natures. In Sanskrit, uh, kalpita, which means the imaginary nature, paratantra, the dependent nature, and parinishpana, the complete realized nature. So Vasubandhu is declaring here that all of our experience, whether it's sense experience of things in the world, because we only know there is a world, right, because of our senses and our mind, could be there's nothing there. But we know there's something there because of our senses and our mind, but also sometimes without sensing anything in the outer world, we have emotions, we have thoughts, we even have what we might call spiritual experiences that are not exactly perceptions and not exactly emotions, something a little vaguer and harder to describe. But all these experiences, these are all human experiences, all our experiences have these three natures at the same time. So these three natures are always appearing all the time at the same time. Now, of course, you could say, I think, with justice, that there are no three natures, you know. There's no, like, thing anywhere called three natures that is sort of lurking under. If you pick up a corner of your experience, you'll find three natures. No, there's no three natures anywhere. They're just concepts, words, that Vasubandhu is making up for the purpose of pointing out to us specifically how we are mistakenly living and therefore suffering and how exactly and specifically we need to straighten ourselves out. That's why he's invented these sort of conceptual distinctions, which I think probably exist in the sutras too, but not explained as, as well as he explains them. So the first point is, Everything, all of our experience is imaginary. A thought, you know, very dear to my heart, you know, that's, I was sort of talking about that in my book, The World Could Be Otherwise, which really should have been titled, The World Is Otherwise, but the publisher said, no, nobody will ever be able to get that. <laughs> so I said, you're right, they won't. So, the world is imagined. We are imagining the world. That's what, that's what um, Vasubandhu is saying. The world of appearances, whether it's the inner world, the outer world, or any world, including the sun, the moon, the stars, everything, does not exist as something real. As the real perception of a real object out there, or the real emotion of a real person, Everything is imagined, everything is projected, everything is an appearance that is the creation of mind. To be sure, it's a very convincing 
imaginary appearance, and that's the problem. You know, that is the problem. We're so convinced by it. I mean, an imaginary person can insult another imaginary person, and the second imaginary person can be upset for weeks because they're so convinced that that insult was spoken by a real person to themselves who is equally real and it's very upsetting. But no, this is a very convincing and habitual illusion, but it's an illusion. Now, here we have to be very careful because when you say illusion, you're automatically implying that there's something else that is real and that is not an illusion. Maybe the Buddha knows what's real and what's not illusory. But the idea here is that there is nothing that is not an illusion. Nothing. Everything is parikalpita. These various illusory appearances are imaginary visions projected onto paratantra, the second of the three natures, the dependent, or more precisely, the other dependent nature. So, in other words, the imaginary is imaginary of what? It imagines separate entities, right? It, it sets up a whole kind of category of space and time to separate the entities. You know, I am not the sun. I'm not on the sun. The sun is far away. It's many trillions of miles away. I'm not you. I don't know what you know. You don't know what I know. We're separate entities. Everything is separate. Everything, of course, how could I see the tree if I was the tree? I have to be other than the tree to see the tree. And, and oddly, I have to be separate from my thought to think my thought. And here's the oddest part. If I don't like myself, who's the one who doesn't like who? I have to be separate from myself in order to have a thought of self-judgment. And you know, I, we're so plagued by the idea of self-judgment, but how is that possible, self-judgment, unless we were two people? So we're constantly making separation, and the separation is constantly painful. To experience anything is automatically to create a world of difference. The one who experiences the thing and the thing that is experienced. Without, those different, without that difference between those two things, there is no experience. And all of that is a projection, an appearance projected onto other dependency. In this case, other dependency specifically means not that everything depends on everything, as is emphasized in the emptiness teaching, but that everything depends on mind. Without mind, we don't have these imaginary projections, right? There's no perception without a, without a brain, without a, without a mind, without cognition. Without mind, there's nothing. So the basis of the imaginary inner worlds and outer worlds is mind, which is not imaginary in the same way that the world is imaginary. Mind, 
or maybe the way we would say it is consciousness, is the fundamental basis of the world we live in. In a way, that is not a radical proposition. We could all agree to that, but when we live, we don't look, look at it that way, right? We're not living knowing that. So what appears, it's very clever. It's, they, all the translators say that, that they're very apologetic, that there's no way they can bring out the cleverness of these verses and the kind of wordplay and everything. But in this case, they almost do. They say, what appears, what appears is the dependent mind, meaning mind. What, what appears is mind. What you're looking at all the time is not what you think you're looking at. You're looking at mind. How it appears is as the imaginary world, which is imaginary because it cannot really take into account what things actually are, mind-dependent, but takes these imaginary things as real. And that's what the first two verses are saying. They're saying that everything that appears is mind, but the only way that mind appears is as imaginary projections. That's how the first two natures relate to one another. But what about the third nature, which is the good one, right? The one we like. It sounds the best, right? Complete, realized nature. Sounds like the highest class of nature. Well, this is discussed in the third verse, but I'm afraid it's a little disappointing. Complete, realized nature. What is it? Here's what it is. The constant absence of how it appears in what appears is known as the complete realized nature since it is never otherwise. What? <laughs> what? The constant absence of how it appears in what appears is known as the complete realized nature since it is never otherwise. What he's saying, in effect, is that there is no complete realized nature. There's no experience, there's no view, there's no idea, there's no insight called the complete realized nature. The complete realized nature is simply the fact that the imaginary nature is imaginary. Which means it doesn't exist as such. It's absent, as it says in the verse. It's absent as anything real. This is exactly what Dogen means when he says, enlightenment is delusion throughout delusion. It's not a thing. It's just knowing delusion as delusion. That's exactly what's being said here. We are not going to find enlightenment as a something, as an experience, as an improvement over reality as we see it. Enlightenment, or in this case, the term he uses is complete realized nature, is nothing other than knowing the imaginary as the imaginary. Knowing that it is simply not real in the way we think it's real. And it's always like that, as the verse says. It's always this way. It's never any other way. No matter how we see it, it is never otherwise than an imaginary world that has no real existence as we conceive it. Life is always the complete realized nature. And, and maybe you 
notice here the relationship between this teaching and the teaching of Sandokai, which is, you could say, almost the central Soto Zen way of understanding life. And this is our practice in Soto Zen, specifically to take the relative or imaginary world at face value, not to think it's trivial or unreal, to fully accept it, honor it, lovingly take care of it, but to understand that it is imaginary. And that makes the way we take care of it very different. I would say less anguished and more tender. So the fourth verse adds one more wrinkle to this story. The idea of duality that hasn't quite been expressed yet. What appears here? Unreal imagination. How does it appear? As being dual. What is its non-existence? The essential non-duality there. In making a distinction between what appears and how it appears, Vasubandhu is emphasizing that our ordinary experience of reality, the how of reality, is a dynamic process. It's a dynamic flow. The mind is constantly moving all the time, making stuff up so creatively. The world itself is a creative projection of our mind, and our mind is a creative projection of the world. Colorful world of difference, but also a world of desperation and suffering. And why is the mind doing this? He'll say so later, and he says so in other texts. The mind does this because of ancient twisted karma. Because we have a very, very long old habit. Grooves worn in our mind that cause our mind to go certain ways. Basic human grooves that come from our ancient collective human suffering. And then the individual grooves that come from my suffering and your suffering. So there are these grooves and the mind flows on, creating these appearances. All of it is really just a projection of mind. There are no things, no experiences, there are no separation, there's no duality. And this essential unity, or we might say perfection, serenity, always appears to us as separation and suffering. There's a gap right in the middle of our basic human experience. A lack, a problem, a hole in reality. That's duality. I'm here, you are eternally over there. We want love, but we can't find it because we're so essentially separate. So we suffer, we fight, we insult one another, we misunderstand one another, we don't see each other. We're exiled, alienated from the world, which is our basic imaginary consciousness. And I don't need to make that different. I can't. But when I really feel 
and see and know this and understand how it is imaginary and not really as it seems to be, then there's no more duality and no more gap. And life is love and belonging all the time. And it has never been anything else. So at first, when you hear this, you think, well, I've got to get over this imaginary habit. I've got to get over to the complete realized mind, the true mind. But no. Remember, these are just made-up concepts. There are no three natures. It's just one reality. Things are just the way they are. They've always been that way. To say that this human world of duality is a world of suffering and separation and it needs to be overcome is to miss the fact that there is no other world than this human world. No more beautiful world, no more perfect world, no more possible any other world. So to end suffering isn't finally to have the right idea and get rid of the wrong idea or the right experience and get rid of the wrong experience. It is to completely appreciate Take completely into your heart the experience of being human and to completely take into your heart the world as the world, which includes our human suffering. And, and it's a really difficult thought to appreciate, I know, especially now, right, right now, when we're looking at the world with such anguish. I mean, I'm pretty heartbroken and confused and upset every day to see this that's going on, the war, the violence, the killing of innocent people, the confusion even about what's going on, who's to blame, who's at fault, what should be done. And never mind about that, if we didn't have that, we would then remember again that we have a climate crisis, which is super urgent, and we are definitely not on track. I mean, we're getting, we're doing something, thank goodness, but we're not on track to really make it better. And then, you know, the reckoning with the systematic injustice that's been going on forever and ever that we're noticing. This is all imaginary. This is all just a projection. We look at the world and we really desperately want it to be otherwise than it is. But the world is imaginary and our wish that it be otherwise is imaginary. So we sit back in our Buddhist serenity with a little half smile like the Buddha has no matter what is going on? No. We're human beings with hearts that care and minds that have the capacity to project a vision of a future world of peace and sanity and of course we're going to work toward that vision. Our doing that is part of the endless play of reality that flashes on and on imaginatively. So there's no doubt 
we're going to do what we can do. There's no doubt we're going to be active in expressing our care for one another in the world. But the question is, how do we do that? Do we do it with attachment and anguish and hatred and bitterness? That means we can't sleep at night and we're full of tension all day? Or do we do it knowing who we are and what the world is? Do we do it knowing how profound and beyond our understanding this magnificent life actually is all the time, even on the worst day, even in the worst place? Or do we reduce our human life to something small and mean and therefore reinforce our aloneness and our powerlessness and our grief? We're not going to transform by reading a book or explaining Vasubandha's philosophy. Doing that is part of a bigger process that we are involved in and that will transform us and that is transforming us. Our daily practice over time. It is a tremendous consolation to me to be able to practice to have practice friends to, to be with, to be able to sit together, to chant together, to share the teachings. I don't think the idea here is to pass the exam and be an expert on these Basubandhu details. No, we're just appreciating the teachings, listening. And over time, little by little by little, we are going to see exactly what Vasubandhu hopes we will see. Not by having an intellectual breakthrough or, or a meditation breakthrough, but through the process of living our lives as lives of practice. So I'm, thank you, you're very patient to listen to all this so long. I, 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 when I said we were going to do this for 10, uh, sessions, I thought, let's see how, if we can last for 10 sessions. <laughs> we'll try. I close with uh, a poem because, uh, you know, in Zen, Zen uh, takes up the question of language. There's a lot of stuff in Zen, you know, about language because mind, the human mind and language are very closely associated. In fact, you could say that's maybe the difference between the human mind and mind of other creatures. Every creature has mind, right? Grasses have mind, stones have mind, a building has a mind. Human mind has language, and that's its virtue and its problem. So Zen has a lot about that. So this poem is about, like so many of my poems are actually about mind-only teachings, as is this one from my book, uh, The Museum of Capitalism, that I think Probably you all missed. Somehow it came out and nobody noticed. But uh, it came out a few years ago. The Museum of Capitalism. It's pretty, pretty good, actually. Too bad. Museum of Capitalism. <laughs> Too bad nobody noticed. Uh, the Museum of Capitalism. Uh, this is one of the uh, poems in it. I think of the little ways I am foolish. I think of matter. How hard it is. I can't put my hand through it. I think of thinking, how I can't put my hand on it. 
I think of my hand as an object of thought. Two words. I think of the ordinary ways I am foolish. I think of the little ordinary ways others are foolish. I think of the violent ways others are violent. I think of the innocent ways I am violent to the violent others. I think of violation as inherent to thought. I think of molestation as inherent to matter. I think of my friends and loved ones. Who are they? Do I have any idea? I think of my body in space. Whose body? What space? I think of important things. I think of trivial things. I think of Emily Dickinson. Where are you? I think of the past, a moment ago, a decade ago. Did it actually occur? I think of the word actually, what it might mean. I think of various specific words and words in general. How can you think of words in general except through these specific words? I think of using words slowly, carefully, deliberately. I think of the silence in which thinking occurs. I think of God, who is like my dead friend. His absence makes him perfect and comforting. I think of darkness, my old friend. I think of my mind, a marvel. I think of time passing. I think of of and as and if and is. I think of writing as heaven and speaking as space. I think of meaning as beyond and behind meaning. I think of the pleasure of completion and the silence and restlessness to follow. I think of life as being after death and death as being folded into life. I think of floating. I think of the wrinkles on the sea. I think of birds disappearing into fog as they fly. Well, thank you. I went on quite a long time, and like I say, I really appreciate your patience, but I wanted to give all that background, and I think as we go on, we won't have to say so much. I have to sort of set it up at first. Besides, I haven't had a chance to talk to you for a whole month, and I had a lot I wanted to say to you. So I think, why don't we uh, take about a minute or two, because we've all been sitting here all this time, to, to stretch. And then in about two or three minutes, we'll come back, and let's just talk as a group before we chant, okay? So I'm going to turn my screen off while I get up and stretch. Recording stopped.